You're listening to World Affairs. I'm Ray Suarez. In the first part of the program, New York Times reporter Azmat Khan discussed the need for U.S. and global accountability in investigating civilian casualties of war. But even that distinction between civilian and combatant, target and bystanders, reflects an ever-evolving code of war that forces soldiers to reconcile the brutality of battle with traditional laws of civil society. But where does this code come from? Shannon French is professor of military ethics at Case Western Reserve University. For the past 25 years, she's advised military academies on battlefield decision-making and the moral psychology of war. And she says remote warfare is the latest challenge in keeping both civilians and soldiers safe. Professor, welcome to World Affairs. Thank you so much for having me. We've been fighting for thousands of years. How long has it been since the nations of the world actually tried to hammer out a set of guidelines between them that made some ways of warfare licit and some illicit? Well, the interesting thing that I think surprises some people is that the idea of there being rules and limits to war, the complete rejection of the old saying, all's fair in love and war, actually dates back pretty much to the beginning of human history. Because from the start, it was recognized by people that this event that happens that's so disruptive to everyone's lives that causes so much pain and suffering should have some kinds of lines drawn around it. And perhaps even more strikingly, the idea that If we're going to ask people to kill in the name of our community, whether that community is a tribe or a nation, then we have to give them some way to distinguish themselves from the people we normally condemn for killing, such as murderers. So from the very beginning of any kind of rules or ethics, which again start with every religion, every early culture, what you have are people saying this far, but no farther. There are certain things you can do that are honorable, and there are certain things that are dishonorable. And that's the kind of language you particularly see in in the beginning of these conversations is what makes someone honorable even in war and what makes them dishonorable. Now, having said that, it's of course important to recognize that these rules or codes have also been violated since the dawn of time. Because just as people recognized that there was a reason to have them, and that that reason protected not only potential victims, but actually the ones doing the fighting, there were also people who very cleverly and correctly realized that exploiting those rules by violating them, by shocking people, by increasing the horror through your violations of those rules, would give you an advantage. So you have both happening simultaneously. A very early acknowledgement, it's in the Code of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, goes all the way through all different parts of the world, too. It's not at all uniquely Western or anything like that. But you also, at the same time, have people saying, ah, if I know what the rules are, I can break them for an intentional horrific effect. Civilians have always suffered in war. That's not new, but the technology is new, the size of the battle space is new, the size of armies 
is new. You know, uh, Marathon, Poitiers, Culloden uh, Moor, Hastings, Agincourt. I mean, we're talking about fairly small groups of people who are intending to be there. Knights, bowmen, foot soldiers who meet each other and try to kill as many of each other as possible. But now, combatants fight amid, around, among civilians, and a lot of people die. Are our future officers taught from the get-go that that's wrong, that it should be avoided, even if the enemy is using it to his advantage? They are taught that, but I want to emphasize that you are absolutely correct that, if anything, war has gotten much, much more dangerous for civilians. In many of the most recent conflicts, more civilians died than combatants by quite some range. So what you're pointing out is very disturbing. It's a trend that we don't want to see continue, where the people who are the most vulnerable, who can't fight back, who are supposed to be protected by those very conventions and rules and codes I mentioned, are actually the ones who are getting killed most often and suffering the most. And of course, we know things like destruction of infrastructure and interruptions in farming. All these things cause, again, long-range, sometimes even permanent harm to civilian populations. So we do teach all of our young officers the idea that civilians, no matter what side they're on, have a very special status. They are not supposed to be part of the fight, and you're actually supposed to put their lives above yours if you're in uniform, which is a lot to ask, and we know that's true. But It is, again, core to the value of distinguishing what troops do from what anyone else who kills does. There has to be the sense that you only kill certain people at certain times in certain ways. And that includes certain uses of weapons and and tactics and all of these things that we restrict. And the most core to that is this idea that there are people who are just always out of bounds. And... I would like to emphasize one other point here, which is that who is out of bounds has nothing to do with their attitudes. So, for example, if you have civilians who are really in favor of the side that is your enemy, you know, cheering on the sidelines, that's irrelevant. What's relevant is whether they are doing the fighting. If they are not a direct and immediate threat in the same way that combatants are, it doesn't matter how much in favor they are in the, of the conflict. It's not a moral judgment in that sense. It's not a judgment of intention. It is supposed to be just about combatant or non-combatant. I think it's a natural thing to pay a lot of attention to civilians because in so many cases, they're literally defenseless. They can't fight back. They suffer terribly. But in all the attention we pay to civilians in the cost, the physical, human cost they pay in war, are we understanding more, understanding better the burden of the fighter in uniform who kills a kid by accident, who's given intelligence that a building is an enemy hideout only to find out that it's full of civilians after it's been destroyed? That must have a cost as well, no? It absolutely does. And in my field, in military ethics, we tend to call this moral injury. 
And the moral injury that troops suffer in exactly the kind of situations that you just described, where there was no ill intent, where they believed themselves to be fighting in fair and reasonable ways and targeting the right people at the right time, just as I said earlier. And then they find that they've made a mistake. And mistakes absolutely happen. The so-called fog of war is sometimes misused to defend war crimes. But where it really applies is in these kinds of tragedies where, again, people are trying to do the right thing. But mistakes do happen just as they do everywhere. So when that happens, there's this sense that you have to live with your mistake. You have to feel the moral weight of it. You can't pass it off to anyone else. You can't deny that it happened. And being given the time and the ability to process that, it's not always available. It's, you know, not always something that is prioritized. I find it interesting that the idea of this kind of damage is, again, pretty timeless. You find people talking about that kind of moral injury in Homer's Iliad. You also find terms for it. In, in the American Civil War, it was called nostalgia, not PTSD, but nostalgia. <laughs> and later it was called soldier's heart, which I kind of like because it does, again, suggest that this is a deep wound that gets to the core of who you are. But whatever you call it, what it's about is this sense of your own values being violated by something you did. It feels like some kind of betrayal. And it's hard to reconcile with your sense of identity. Identity is really important for people who fight. They want to feel, quite frankly, like they're the good guys. And if you participate in or witness something that violates that or makes you question that, it can be devastating. A portion of our warfighters have entered an era of push-button war, whether you're targeting a cruise missile from a ship far offshore, or sitting half a world away watching a video screen and getting authorization to move on a target, did our senior commanders understand the stresses of remote combat when we entered this era, where we're able to launch a Hellfire missile with no physical risk to ourselves, but perhaps the risk of this moral injury that you were talking about? The straightforward answer is no. It was not well understood going in, and particularly for the program we now refer to as the drone program. The sense I think people had was that it would be like a video game, that you would be so detached from what you were doing that you could easily transition from carrying out those remote missions to logging out of work and going to take your kids to a soccer game and that this wouldn't be a problem couldn't have been further from the truth. In fact, what we really saw were spikes in moral injury and post-traumatic stress for these kinds of remote operators. And one of the reasons is that, in fact, what they were doing in many ways more closely resembled the actions of, for example, a sniper, in that they had to effectively get to know their targets. They had to, you might even use the term stalk uh, for a while, the people that they were being asked to monitor. And so they would see those people in very ordinary human situations. They would see them just going about their day and interacting with their families. 
And then at some point, they'd be given the order to kill that person. And the moral injury that can come from that stark contrast to, wow, I just saw that guy hug his kid and now I'm told that's a threat, kill them, is incredibly brutal. So yeah, we didn't really see that coming. And even uh, to the level of the kind of psychological preparation that was given was not uh, with any understanding. Whereas when you do talk about snipers and other forces like that, they are given more specialized, both screening and training to deal with those kinds of pressures. Are we fated to always be playing catch up? Are ethics able to lead changes in weapons and tactics? Or are they always tagging behind, in effect, fighting the last war because we developed tactics and strategies around the weapons and ideas we used to have while we're coming up with all kinds of new things all the time? I'll admit that as a military ethicist, one of the things that I get frustrated about is a sense of extreme forgetfulness. I think that a lot of the knowledge that we do need to help guide people through the very difficult ethical path that you have to walk if you're trying to make it through these kinds of situations, the guidance for that is ancient in many ways. And you're not the first person to have these questions. You're not the first person to feel this kind of pain or confusion. But instead, when each new technology emerges, there is this kind of just responsive panic where people run around and say, oh, no, you know, we need an all new ethics or we don't know what to do. So, for example, the idea of distance warfare, it itself really isn't that new because we saw similar reactions when, for example, the longbow or the crossbow were invented. One of the popes actually tried to call uh, the crossbow an ungodly weapon because it could kill from a distance and just, you know, try to get it outlawed. So this concept of distance warfare in itself isn't that new. But we forget how we've helped people through this. We forget all the lessons. I'd also like to point out that it helps to look cross-culturally. In The Code of the Warrior, one of the things that I talked about was how some cultures have done a bit more in terms of caring for the people that they send to fight and making sure that those transitions are healthy. And again, it, it's irrespective of technology because it is this timeless understanding that you're still killing. The core is that you're killing other humans and that's a taboo that you're having to push through. So, for example, some of the Plains tribes of Native Americans have very elaborate rituals when people return from combat to give them that time, I mentioned, to process what they've done and to talk about it with people who have been there and felt those same things, including elders. So there's an intergenerational element as well. Before they're confronted with just being thrust back into ordinary civilian life with their families. And I think if we did more of that, we would see less of some of these after effects that sadly do include in the extreme suicide and domestic violence, but also you know, drug abuse. And there's many ill effects that can come from people not being given that kind of support. I, I will say some of the services have tried to do transition programs. I think there is an awareness of this. But again, what frustrates me is it's spotty and it seems to come and go with different leadership. So I wish we would just learn lessons 
once and good and for all and not have to forget them and relearn them over and over again. As fewer and fewer people among us serve in uniform or trained in arms ever see combat, we seem to praise those people even more intensely. The volunteer is regarded in a different way from the conscript all over the world. And I, I worry about that and I wonder about it because there's a different ethic when a tiny percentage of us decide to enter that world instead of being ordered to enter that world. And I wonder if the sand is shifting under our feet in that regard in a way that we're not even aware of and whether we have to be careful about it, whether we loosen the leash a little bit when we separate out as a caste warriors rather than them being your uncle and your dad and your brother and you yourself. Yeah, and, and your wife and your sister. Increasingly. You're absolutely right that the civil-military divide has widened, and I am very concerned about that. And I think that there's so many important reasons to be concerned about it. One is this sense that those who make the decisions to go to war, if they don't have skin in the game, then they're unlikely to put the barriers high enough for sending people to their deaths or or even just using weapons that might not get our troops killed, but will cause a horrible destruction at, at the other end where they're received. So lowering those barriers worries me, and I think that is a dangerous result of having this divide. But there's also this point that you were making about the people who are fighting themselves being told over and over again that they are special and elite and this very separate class. I find it very interesting that a lot of my good military friends are irritated by that, quite frankly. They are sick and tired of it. And the number of times where I've heard them joke about, look, this holiday is not about us. Not every holiday is about the troops. Or, you know, they don't want to see another support the troops sign or be offered a discount. They'll hide the fact that they're military in some cases because they're just fed up with all of that. And yet, at the same time, we have dangerous situations this was recently highlighted in Australia by their Brereton report about their elite special forces troops committing war crimes in Afghanistan, that these troops were so often set aside, set apart, and told that they were special and elite, that it really did result in them thinking there were no rules for them, that the rules didn't apply. And they became much more like a street gang with rites of passage that had nothing to do with courage or discipline and everything to do with just being loyal for loyalty's sake and killing for pleasure, which is, of course, deeply disturbing. So all of which is to say, I know this is wildly unpopular, but I think there are good reasons to ask about the draft again and say, look, there was a reason why people were nervous from the founding of this country about a standing army. There's a, a reason to want a mix of people in the military who have had different backgrounds, different experiences, and as you said, are going to return to those lives after the war and so have a very different reaction to what they're experiencing and a perspective about it. And in a very minor way, one thing I would like to see more of 
is our officers going through ordinary civilian universities for their degrees as well as the academies. That happens now, but looking at the proportions and making sure that we're not having too many people whose only experience from the moment they leave high school is within this very separate caste, basically. There's a harm that can come from that and a loss of, again, the core essential identity, which, as you said, really ought to be citizen soldier and also servant leader serving the nation. I would be remiss if I let you go without talking a little bit about what's going on between Russia and Ukraine, because I'm sure you're watching this with a mixture of horror and fascination as civilians are bearing the brunt, civilian populations are being kidnapped. There's some wild stuff going on, kidnapped and transported into the invading nation to sort of disappear beyond all accountability. What are you seeing when you look at Russia and the way they are prosecuting this war against an unwilling combatant that had no beef with them and never would have attacked them? Well, you're quite right that watching day to day what's been happening in Ukraine is incredibly just heartrending because what we are seeing is troops on the Russian side, and that's both conventional troops and these mercenaries from, for example, the, the Wagner Group, violating every convention. And we've seen pretty much every type of war crime that exists happening in, in one form or another. I realize that there's still investigations to conclude and evidence to be gathered, but unfortunately, there's already quite a lot of evidence of sexual crimes murder of POWs, torture, and also this idea of kidnapping people and transporting them into Russia or into Russian-controlled areas, which then also has this sense of a kind of a, a genocide or an ethnic cleansing kind of approach in that they're trying to get them to feel Russian and not Ukrainian and condition them to reject their own country. This is such a stark violation of international norms. And certainly, the world is paying attention to that. There's no question that people are calling out Russia for this. But the real question is, at the end of the day, will Russia fail because of this? I like to think that they will. And there are some signs that they have already failed to some degree, at least. They certainly didn't achieve their initial rush to Kiev that they wanted. It seems clear they didn't expect the West to rally around Ukraine and send as much support. But there's still all this current talk of Russia trying to hold fake referendums and claim territory. And if they succeed, if they come away with that, I really am concerned about the message that that sends, because it's as with any crime. If you send the message that no one is policing this, then people are going to think it's a free-for-all. I think that going forward, we definitely need to see international prosecutions of the war crimes that are being investigated, and that needs to happen sooner rather than later. And certainly the, the other actions like sanctions and so forth need to continue and probably be increased. But at the end of the day, it's very worrying if any other nations are looking at this and saying, is Russia getting away with it? 
Given what you know about the international architecture for enforcement, who has to provide the vessel, the venue, the charging power, are you confident as we sit here in mid-2022 that Russia will pay a price for this? I wish I could say yes. I have great respect for the International Criminal Court, the ICC, and I think that there will be every effort made to bring criminals to justice from this conflict. But unfortunately, the U.S. is to blame for being one of the nations that isn't a signatory to the ICC. So the power that is invested is weakened by not having a full slate of international support. So I do worry that the teeth won't be there. We again have seen consequences in the sense of sweeping sanctions and so forth, but we need to see it in terms of war crimes prosecution, quite frankly, on the level of the Nuremberg trials. And without that kind of high scale and high attention, really very transparent kind of prosecution, I worry that the message will be too small and it won't have the impact that we need it to have globally. Shannon French teaches at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. She's the author of The Code of the Warrior, Exploring Warrior Values, Past and Present. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to World Affairs, produced in partnership with KQED, with funding from TPG, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and from listeners like you. If you'd like to support the program by becoming a member or making a donation of any size, please go to worldaffairs.org donate. And we'd like to hear from you. What did you think about today's episode? Are there international stories you'd like us to be covering? Send an email or voice memo to feedback at worldaffairs.org. Today's episode was produced by Ryan Housel, Elise Manukian, Matteo Schimpf, and Andrew Stelzer. It was mixed and mastered by Matteo Schimpf. Research and fact-checking was provided by Ryan Housel and Elise Manukian. Additional production and engineering were provided by Rob Spate. Jim Bennett is our technical supervisor. Philip Yun is CEO of World Affairs. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening. <laughs>